This episode of Tinfoil Swans is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Food and Wine's Tinfoil Swans, a weekly podcast serving up inspiring, touching, hilarious, revealing conversations with some of the biggest names in the food and beverage world, and we hope giving you plenty to savor even after the episode is over. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Executive Features Editor at Food & Wine, and I am eternally fascinated by how successful creative people become, well, themselves. What are the moments, influences, missteps, pep talks, and decisions, big and small, that got them where they are today? This week, it put a big old grin on my face to talk with the eternally optimistic Shota Nakajima. You probably know him from his incredible run on Top Chef Season 18, his appearances on Tournament of Champions and other Food Network shows, his multiple Seattle restaurants, or his extremely entertaining and educational Instagram feed. But before he became the multi-hyphenate sensation that he is, Shoda was a less than enthused high school student with his head deep into a sketchbook or wandering into the quiet woods looking for mushrooms and bugs, hoping to find his place in the world. Welcome to season one, episode four of Tinfoil Swans, Shoda Nakajima and the right way to move a couch. Shoda, thank you so much for making time today. You said right before we got on mic that you were multitasking, and I have a feeling there are so many people on you, after you, around you, having you do things right now, so I really appreciate you carving out time to do this. Of course. It's my pleasure, and it's been a while. I just wanted to catch up with you. I was like, well, work (laughs) and catching up with Kat, why not? (laughs) As I've been telling folks who's going to be on the podcast, like, you know, there's some people who have the same name as other folks, but like, you're just Shoda. Everyone knows who it is, and I will say also when it was announced that you were going to be on this. There are a few folks on staff who were so incredibly excited. So I want to unpack about how we got to that point where you have become such this beloved person from folks who don't even necessarily work in food, but who love you from, you know, your appearances on TV. And of course, they love the food that they've seen you do. But these are, you know, folks who don't just love what you make, they love you. And I want to have a conversation about how you got there and if you ever expected it. Let's talk about 10-year-old Shoda. 10-year-old me was running through the woods with my dog making forts and picking bugs and mushrooms. The journalist question, what's the dog's name? The dog's name was Guardy. Guardy. It was based off of a Pokemon name, actually. What kind of dog? It was a Sheltie. So you're running wild through the woods with your dog and you're, you're picking things I'm wondering if like flash forward, is that why you like to forage? Probably, you know, I think there is a natural thing because my mom always laughs about it. It's like you don't change. Like if you had time to go do something, you would be in the woods with the dog and you still do that. I was like, yeah, I guess so. When you were 10, did you know what a chef was and that you would be one? I wasn't interested in being a chef, to be honest with you, until I got a job in restaurants. <laughs> How'd that happen? Well, I dropped out of high school mm-hmm. and my dad was, you know, hey, if you're not going to school, you need to get a job. So I went to go apply at jobs, but I was this 15 year old Japanese kid. You know, I looked kind of a little punky. <laughs> and, you know, I applied at Zoomies, PacSun, Starbucks, a bunch of these little places. No one took me in. And then my friend was like, well, that Japanese restaurant over there, if you speak Japanese, they'll hire you. So I walked in and I was like, do you have any positions? They're like, we need a dishwasher. I was like, cool. Started washing dishes, peeling onions. And I don't know, I think for me, school was hard, right? 
Mm-hmm. When I was in school, all I remember is just drawing. I just drew all the time. Science, history, all that. I would have a beautiful masterpiece in an hour. Did I learn anything? Something about something, maybe? <laughs> not all teaching methods or environments work for everybody. And I think it's better now but than it had been. And people who have different kinds of minds aren't really served always so well, or at least they weren't back. You're much younger than I am, <laughs> but definitely not when I was and perhaps not when you were younger as well. Was anybody trying to help you or get you more interested or did you get in trouble for not wanting to do these things? I got in trouble all the time for not wanting to do these things. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just wasn't interested, like genuinely not interested. I love drawing. It made me happy. Mm -hmm. And then I would get distracted with drawing the whole entire time. Do you still draw? Yes, all the time. Oh, like what do you draw? Do you have a particular thing you go back to? Is there a style in which you draw or a medium in which you draw? I love pen. I love pen work. It's one of my favorites to just sit there and draw with a pen. I love oil, but oil takes a while. So I've changed more to acrylic just because it's kind of the, in my mind, the quick version. (laughs) Do people know this about you? Does your art manifest in your restaurants? My old restaurant did. I had a lot of my drawings. I can go grab some, but I guess these are like some of the ones that are like... Okay, I am looking at an absolutely gorgeous black and white sketch of this beautiful dog. This is stunning. I want to see a restaurant full of your art and the woods my gosh, you're just like, and that's that's really just a stunning thing. I wonder if in the show notes we can link to any of these. I like the notion of like you operating in this totality because to me, even though I don't make as much art anymore, what I do is informed by all of it. And it sounds like so much of this is informed by who you were, who you have been this whole time and keeps getting revealed. I'm so lucky that I found the restaurant industry when I was young, right? Because for me, what helped me as like a younger kid, okay, I was failing at school. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really help with confidence. But at a job, I showed up on time and I tried as hard as I could. And I showed up every single day and that was congratulated all the time. Mm -hmm. And they would teach me more things and I would learn and I would feel great about myself and I wanted to learn more and I started to get more ambitious. And I think just that was very good at the end of the day, like just a very simple task. And, you know, I think for me, I'm good at learning what I'm interested in at the moment. One of my high skills, if I was interviewing any anyone is like, if I don't know anything, I will find the answer to it. I know how to find the answer to it. It might take a second. I might ask you a few questions, but I'll find the answer. That is such a great skill in life generally, very much for front of house. I always think that the like a genuine, I don't know, I will go find out is to me so much more appreciated than someone sort of trying to bluster through like, oh, well, there are notes of uh, such and such. And yeah. curiosity is beautiful. Yeah. Had there been times before in your life, before the restaurant industry, where you were getting this affirmation, this sort of this notion that, yes, I'm good at this thing and it's being celebrated? It was art. It was always yeah. art. I mean, the teachers would be like, you need to do your test, but that drawing is beautiful. I'm like, thank you. You know, I think there's a big intersection here. And I think some of it is because of the kinds of minds that it takes to go into restaurants. We're not necessarily linear people, but people who express things in a different kind of medium than maybe is rewarded in a lot of academic work. I was interviewing Alfred Portali recently, and he was saying if he hadn't been a chef, he would have been a visual artist and perhaps a jeweler because it's, you know, it's all a a totality in that way. Yeah. Okay. So you started at, you said 15. 16 dishwasher you're working your way up at 20 who were you i moved to japan when i was 18 to go work at a michelin star restaurant 
I just had this massive ambition. I guess I'll rewind a little bit, but I remember this one chef came from Japan who trained in a Michelin star restaurant. And the way all the chefs looked up to him and asked questions, I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to be that guy. Yeah. Right? Like, why do, why do I want to be the middle? I don't understand what a Michelin is the first time I'm hearing of this word. Because it wasn't like, you know, I followed chefs and I wanted to be a chef. I just kind of got a job. And I remember being like, I want to go work in a Michelin star restaurant in Japan. And then my, my chef was like, yo, you're American raised would not be able to make it in Japan. <laughs> and obviously that gave me fire. I really appreciated those words. I think at the end of the day, it was a great way to motivate me. I think he understood that when he said that. I remember working in the Mission Star restaurant and I wanted to quit every single day for like the first six months, but I just did not want to go home with my tail tucked behind my head. I was like, you know what? I need to do this. Like whatever it is, just finish it. Build a habit. What is that thing in you? It's sometimes easy to run up against somebody who says, no, you can't, or this thing is hard and to not internalize that too much. What is that thing in you or that you learned that maybe operates in in defiance? And have you always had that? I think for me, it was, okay, I wasn't good at school. I wasn't good at this. What can I excel out? Mm -hmm. I have grit and energy. That is the one thing I can beat out almost everyone around me is always the thought process that I had. So I think that is a big part of kind of what got me to where I am because, you know, restaurants are hard. I operated a fine dining restaurant, owned and operated 100%, no partners. There is a moment where I was running the restaurant, running as the GM, changing the menu every single day, and then doing a little Ubering on the side. Oh my gosh. But, you know, that I think comes from the pure grit of not giving up because every single year you continue, you learn something deeper and something that's just, it turns into this confidence that you have. I have done this for seven years. I have done this for X amount of years. And I think that turns into the confidence that I want to give out to the people around me, my managers, inspire them, try to get them motivated to be the best version of what they can be. That's something that I really enjoy right now. Is that an internal process to check in with yourself? Is there someone you gut check things with? I check with people all the time, but I talk with people. I guess I like to sit and process a lot of things. And what I mean by that is if I'm talking to person A about something, I have strict rules. I'm not going to go vent to someone else mm -hmm. ever. Because in my mind, what that does is that person I'm venting to is always going to be on my side. This conversation is going to change before I talk to this person. I think the best way to always approach a conversation in my mind is two things, right? What is the goal and how am I going to inspire them? That's the only two things that matter when you have conversations in my mind, especially like in work, I guess. And not, not just work, right? Anything, even with mm -hmm. your friends. So I think for me, I try to think about the best way I can position, put words, because, you know, I'm the example. If I can communicate and whatever type of conflict, whatever type of energy or whatever goal it is, if I can always keep them inspired and goal motivated, then it's easy. It's easy for all of us. This sounds like you're coming from a place of wanting things to be better and a place of like wanting a really positive solution. But I know there are a lot of restaurant environments out there where you're operating from a place of fear and that's really not healthy for anyone. You know, I think I was trained that way and I did mm -hmm. that for a long time. For me, I think it came down to hospitality, right? I'm in hospitality. I am definitely a chef that likes hospitality over food, if that makes sense. I think there's two types of chefs. That does. Could you explain that? 
right? I don't, I don't know how to say it, but I guess there's two types of chefs, right? The ones who love hospitality over food and the ones who love food over hospitality. Mm -hmm. I think they both have their strength and it's wonderful when you can find a great team that can work together. But for me, I'm a hospitality forward person. For me, the biggest thing that matters in restaurants over the food and everything is, do they feel welcome when they come home? Do they feel hurt when they come in? That's, that's all that matters. Welcome is such a wonderful, wonderful word because you can feel it when you walk into a restaurant and what the team dynamics are, if somebody's had a bad day, any of these things, if people are there because they genuinely want to offer hospitality to you and let you know that you're wanted there, you can feel it, you can taste it. It makes the food taste worse if you don't feel welcome. A hundred percent. It's the environment, you know, food and whatever, alcohol or whatever it is, like mm -hmm. it feels better, it tastes better with the company, the environment, where you're at. You know, if you're eating over a camp, fire the reality is your food's gonna have dirt in it but it's gonna taste delicious because you're out there with your friends in a wonderful environment i i was interviewing jacques pepin not long ago and he was saying like you know the greatest meals are like a hot dog in the woods with the right people <laughs> like getting like a nicely charred hot dog and you know, and that's the peak of it he's had every you know fantastical meal in the world and that's that's what it comes to when you when you go to this Michelin star Japanese restaurants. Had you lived in Japan before you did this? I did. I lived in Japan for junior high. And as I was growing up every summer, we would come back to Japan and we would go to school in Japan because my mom wanted me to be in touch with Japanese education. Living between cultures, I think for some people, it, it develops their diplomat skills and they can fit in wherever. And some people, they just don't feel right anywhere. What was that experience like for you? I think it was hard and confusing growing up because, mm -hmm. you know, when you're a teenager, you just always want to be obstacle driven for whatever reason. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, right now I'm grateful. And I think I wanted to use the word grateful because I think the biggest thing about Japanese culture that I try to live by and give out to the people around me is just be grateful. I'm so grateful that I have my team. I'm gr so grateful that I have my dishwasher. I'm grateful for the guests that come in. I try to shoot a few grateful text messages a day to some random person. I do that too. It's a great way to look at things, right? Because I think there's two ways to, I guess, live your life and or work, right? Both <laughs> of it. It's being obstacle driven or path driven. Like an obstacle driven person, let's say you're going skiing with a group of friends and you're going through the backwoods or whatnot and you're hitting the first and if you're you know not even just the team leader part of the group especially if you're the leader and you're going man, it's going to be icy it's going to be cold man hopefully you guys are staying warm like you know make sure you mask but there's going to be a lot of trees and cliffs everyone's going to just be paying attention to that and it's just going to not be as fun right or a leader who's going to go, yo, it looks sunny over there. Let's go hit that fluff. People are going to trip, but they're goal motivated. It's it's a lot more fun and it's a lot easier to get there. I would read a management book if you wrote one. <laughs> Did you develop these things along the way? Were you observational? Where does all of this, this come from? Because it feels like you really do have a philosophy of like humanity and management and motivation. Where's how this all come to be? I think it's just sitting on a pile of mistakes. <laughs> Literally, yep. like I'm confident that I have made more mistakes than all of my managers. And I'm not ashamed to say that because that makes me good at my job. That makes me wiser at my job. I mean, acknowledging failure and mistakes, it's not 
built into the culture so naturally, which is why it's so important to talk about because there's there's so much shame around mistakes and failure and it puts you in a prison. I know I've operated a lot of my life just being afraid because, oh no, I messed up. I have shame about that. Then I wonder if I have to hide it or not. And the freest I have ever been is when I decided to sort of come out and show all of my weaknesses for me. It was in the form of saying like, hey, look, I live with mental illness and showing all those things in me. And it turned out to be the strongest thing I've ever gotten to do because it freed me up from having to be perfect or think I was never, ever, ever anywhere close to perfect, but trying to get there. But it gave other people freedom to talk to me about it. And did you grow up in an environment anywhere you were living where it was okay to talk about mistakes or failure? Or was that just you being in trouble? I think being 25, operating a restaurant, making a bunch of mistakes. And I think for me right now is, okay, how do I teach the people around me that it doesn't have to be that tough? I try to move that restaurant. I try to move that couch by myself for a very long time with very loyal support. But I'm 33 now. I want a team. I want a team of people how to do it. I want a team of people I can get rich with. I want a team of people that we can inspire and build something cool with. You know, everyone having their own goals within. And we're just sitting on the same ship. That's so, so important. Do you have people you look to or people you grew up looking to who thought like, oh, you know what? They have the kind of life or the kind of philosophy or the kind of business that I, I want. I mean, my dad is, I don't know how to say it. I mean, he's, he's done a lot in his career. Mm-hmm. It's just someone I look up to. He's modest. He's taught me a lot of lessons. When I was 23, I was running six restaurants. Oh. Open three, I was getting paid a lot and I went to my dad and I was like, yo, listen, blah, blah, blah. And he just looked at me as like, modesty is handsome. Simple, simple lessons, right? And I think throughout just how to communicate with people, I think my dad is very diplomatic and good at getting a solution. He knows when to pull back. He knows when to say things. He knows how to say things. He knows what the goal is. I think, you know, being goal oriented, I think my dad was always a person who was when you have a conversation, where do you want to go? What is this conversation leading to? And how am I going to inspire this kid right now? Is he a person who has relationship to the restaurant industry? Or was he sort of wondering why the hell are you doing that? He's tech. He's tech in business and yeah. all that jazz, which I understand like partial of what he's saying, but I understand <laughs> the enthusiasm. Yeah. I, my business friends, I'm like, I support you. I love you. I have no idea what you're talking about. What stock should I invest in? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> We'll be back with more from Shota Nakajima after the break. This episode of Tenfold Swans from Food and Wine is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced sweet bees honey barbecue chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Tinfoil Swans. Today, I'm chatting with Shota Nakajima. So when they wanted you to get a job, did you blow their minds by saying, I want to go do this in Japan? I want to go into this particular industry. What was that conversation like with them? I mean, they were like, do it. Do what makes you happy. Amazing. But my mom, I mean, she always says like, yo, I thought you were going to come back in a month. (laughs) (laughs) Look at you now. (laughs) I know, right? I was like, yeah, I got grit. So you show up there. Were you scared? I was excited. I was excited to be somewhere brand new fresh energy. I think I wanted to be uncomfortable, as uncomfortable as I can be, because I have family and friends in Tokyo, but I went to a city called Osaka where I don't have friends. I don't have family. I don't have any distractions. I have this cooking thing that I'm going to concentrate on and nothing else. And everyone I meet in my life is going to be cooking people. And that's all I wanted. I think for me, you know, being in Seattle cooking and just kind of hanging out with the friends that I used to hang out with, it was hard sometimes because I would work a lot and they would all be like, why are you working so hard? Why are you doing that? And I'm like, why are you asking me, dude? I'm having a great time. It's way more fun than sitting here watching this dumb video laughing about (laughs) the same thing and saying the same thing over and over. Like, this is just more entertaining for me, unfortunately. And I just wanted to surround myself with people like that. Yeah, that makes sense. I love passionate people. I don't care what you're passionate about. So long as actually in the personal ad through which I met my husband, one of the things I asked for is like, I want somebody who just gives a damn about something. It doesn't matter what it is, just to know that they have that kind of thing. Let's go back to the part about uncomfortable because I, you know, it was doing my homework on you. And you had given an interview where you're talking about like, you always want to do the thing that brings you out of your comfort zone that maybe you don't know how to do that is going to be the surprise thing. But you were talking about like, you want to do the the uncomfortable thing. That's not easy for a lot of people. We're a comfort driven society. And how did you realize that that was actually your sweet spot? I think it's growing up watching anime. (laughs) Talk to me about that. Well, you know, it's just one of those things. It's weird. And I think Japanese people are kind of driven this way, too, because everyone watches the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's full of gratitude, friends, and it's like every single time you do a battle or you get beat up, you learn something new, you get stronger. And I think for me, that's always been a thing. I was like, I just want to get uncomfortable and learn a little bit. And the more I did it, the more I realized how fun it is like making the mistake part like how fun it is to do something you've never done before like when i was 23 and i had that job i completely lied on my resume but i studied everything so i can catch up and do the job if i didn't know what words meant i was studying it and looking it up so by the next meeting i could understand and come up with the goals and tell my boss about it and just keep moving up and it wasn't like I was trying to just go up into the company I mean it just kind of naturally happened because I was so curious in all of this stuff and I had a goal of opening a restaurant by 25 and I was like I got one year to learn this oh wow Birthdays are pretty great motivators with these things. Let's talk about how you got to running all these restaurants. So you're over there, you're a teenager, you're working in in these restaurants. What was your path 
for the next few years from there. Working in restaurants over there, came back when I was 23. I had a goal of opening a restaurant at 25 when I was 20. I was like, I'm going to open a restaurant at 25. I don't care what it is. I'm going to figure it out. And open my first restaurant. It was a Kaiseki style restaurant where we had a 10 course, 15 course. We changed the menu every single day. And that worked for about two years. It was before reservation systems and all that stuff and I just remember it was so hard because we would have a booked out Friday, but then half the guests would come in and go, you guys don't have a California roll? Yeah, let's talk about it because I was I was going to ask, was your clientele familiar with Kaiseki? No, they were not. It was brand new. So you had to introduce this to them. It was tough, you know, and it, it was at the time where people would book on open table and not show up because they have four reservations and they go to whatever restaurant they want to. People do not do that. Oh, that was very common in Seattle because yeah. this is 2015. Talking all those systems, I would say really started coming out in 2017, 2018. But it's hard from a guest perspective. They don't understand how it is. You can't really explain it to them. Actually, do you want to explain? Radio, take a beat and explain to people why you shouldn't do that? Whew, how do I even get into it? I mean, number one, food waste, right? We prep for the exact amount of reservations and we staff properly. There's only a certain amount of tables that you can book. So when those guests don't come as a business, you're just eating $300, $400 per person, especially mm -hmm. in a restaurant like that. And it's very hard as a fine dining. And if you lose six seats on a Friday night, you're looking at, you know, $1,800 worth of revenue. And restaurant business in general, like you're lucky if you're hitting 10% on the bottom line. I think we need to, as part of high school curriculum or middle school or whatever it is, teach people restaurant math. As a business, you have to think about it, right? You have to think about all these aspects. Right now, that's why, like I talked to my team, like we're not just restaurant, we're food business. I'm going to keep doing video so we can keep providing revenue into the company because our goal is I write the top line. We hit the top line, whatever it is. If it's restaurants, let's do restaurants. If it gets tighter, let's move into retail. There's multiple ways of doing it. And you just have to kind of think and lead in that way, if that makes sense. Did you have a notion as you're opening these places and having these restaurants at a very young age? And that's amazing. That's huge. Congratulations for having that kind of thing. But then there ends up being this entirely different part of your career with being a public face of this. Is this something you ever anticipated or did you think, hey, this is going to be a sort of a necessary thing I have to do to promote the restaurants? I think it's a little bit of both. Going into restaurants, it wasn't like I wanted to be a chef or anything or like, you know, that wasn't a goal. TV, like I never watched TV either. So I, I never was interested in it. But as I did it, as I started to have opportunities, like, you know, when I first got called to do Iron Chef Gauntlet, I just remember being nervous. And I was like, mm -hmm. OK, if I'm this nervous, I need to go do it. I'm going to learn something. And after I did it, I realized that the restaurant gets busy when you do things like mm -hmm. that. And it helps my staff. My staff's paychecks were getting bigger. I was able to give more raises to my staff. I was like, OK, this works. And, you know, I did a few more shows and I was like, OK, this is hard and I really like it. And every single time I'm doing TV, I feel like I'm in a brand new career. I go home or back to my hotel and I go, man, I could have done this better, this better. I wish I wasn't this nervous about this situation. And I just love the humility. Right. I felt like a career change, something fresh, something that feels hard. And restaurants are very hard. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, at this point, I've been in it for two decades. So I've made a lot of fun mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I kind of keep doing right now because I love being in that situation. And I think that molded into, you know, I always have a goal, right, for restaurants, next generation. How do I teach self-value to the people around me? We have profit share all included. That's a whole different conversation. For TV, my goals are how do I showcase to the next generation that you can smile while you do your job. 
Yes. Did you come from a smiling restaurant culture or was it very serious? It was very serious. I don't know. I just want to have fun because my thing is like, I did the whole fine dining thing. I did the strict thing too. I was a very strict chef in my first restaurant. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe it's just the generation I'm at. Like I want to be able to laugh and move a couch with my homies, but we all work hard. Like I don't filter things, right? Like even with my closest managers, like we're great. We communicate really well. But, you know, if something happens and you're kind of like down for a few days, I'm the first person is going to go, hey, keep yourself oriented. Let's get out of it. You got to snap out of it. Let's go. I mean, it sounds like you do a lot of caretaking of other people. How are you with that yourself? Do you let yourself be taken care of? I think I'm working on that right now. It's hard, right? <laughs> it's hard. I mean, because, well, I don't know. I, I do think, yeah, I should probably put more energy into taking care of people or myself. Mm-hmm. But when I'm taking care of my employees mm-hmm. and I see them succeed, it is so gratifying. Yeah. And I see them inspired. I'm like, oh, my. And, like, I learn from it, too, right? I get more oriented every single time I do it. I learn every single time I'm doing more teaching, I learn something. And I think I work on myself with that. I think I'm very good at self-reflecting mm-hmm. and being honest with myself, looking in the mirror and going, you need to change this show. That you need to not do this. Or you need to be more like this way and try to keep it goal-oriented or whatnot. And those are the hardest conversations with yourself because I am trying to get out of a place of doing those things and have it be self-flagellation and instead have it be sort of acceptance, okay, that happened, that's why, and really forensically inspect the moment instead of using that to castigate myself or chastise myself, use it like, oh, okay, so here's something I can fix, like that kind of thing. That's hard. I think it's always going to be hard. I think it's never easy, right? But I think... It's the process that matters, trying, trying, and then you learn something, trying, and then you learn something. And that's all that matters. And you just keep doing it. And then you get better at it. And then I think you figure out better ways to do certain things. So you don't do the same thing, but you'll make a new mistake and it's going to be hard. But then you just learn something along the process. And I don't know, that's life, I guess. (laughs) Right. What's your relationship with the word perfect? Perfect is imperfection. Imperfection is perfection, right? Because it doesn't really exist or the best, right? But it's not about actually being perfect or it's not about being the best. It's about who you become in the process when you're trying to go get it. And I think that's the part that matters. You build something in yourself. Like you can look in the mirror and go, yo, I'm proud of myself for doing this and this and this and have that confidence. So for somebody listening right now who's maybe struggling with being kind to themselves, would you give an impromptu pep talk to that person who needs this in their ears right now? I think it's one of the hardest things, but the most important thing is, you know, number one, having goal-oriented people around yourself. If you stay and hang out with people who are going to be negative and not motivate you, there's no possible way to get out of it. And number two is trying to turn it into fire, right? I always say embrace it. Don't run from it. Like if you are messing up at your job, your life, whatever it is, don't run from it. Don't run to alcohol booze. Look in the mirror, like understand it, get it. And then when you feel that little thing right here, don't Mm -hmm. run from it. Turn it into fire. Turn it into something and find that goal and just go for it. Just turbo mode it. Don't think back. Don't have a plan B. Like have a plan A because if you have a plan B, you're spending 70% of your time thinking about plan B. And you just got to believe in yourself, right? Like it's, it's a very hard thing to do, but you have to, 
you have to be your biggest cheerleader. You have to talk to yourself like you talk to your friends. If you talk to yourself in a mean way, you have to replace that with a friend. Would they stick around? Do you have a mantra or a pep talk or anything? Or, or do you have a, like a psych up music for these moments? Is there something you say or a touchstone you have? When I'm struggling, I think a lot and I self-process and I try to take a full accountability for the things I've done, what they've done. You know, I think when I was younger or didn't want to face things, I would more look at just the things that are happening around me, not why I'm there. And instead of that, you can't control what's outside of your environment, right? I guess one thing I do do, like for filtering wise, is when I'm struggling, life, work, everything, I write everything down. Mm -hmm. I dedicate 30 minutes, whatever it is, like, and then you just write everything down. Then you cross off the things you can't control. And it feels so good. Now you have your checklist. Go, go get it tomorrow. You got this. I, I have a couple questions that I like to ask different people. Which character, which of these fictional characters do you identify with most and why? Luffy from One Piece. He is a relentless dreamer of becoming a pirate king in the ocean. But his thing, like this anime is fun because it doesn't actually cover him the whole time. There's episodes of him not coming out. But it's about him pretty much like gathering a crew together that have their own goals. And they do it with finesse. And when I say they do it with finesse... They know how to smile and have a good time while they do it. Finesse is a great word. I love that word, especially like in a restaurant context. I think that's so fun. And I mean, I have like little snoopy things on <laughs> various other I things. always say like on the line, I you know, in stressful times and I see people look stressed, I go, hey, be intentional and have finesse. Do you have it on the wall anywhere? Like a Ted Lasso? I don't have sign? it on the wall. That would be a good one to write on the line, though. Do you have the, anything up on the walls? I mean, I have a lot of things written on the wall because I tagged my whole restaurant with a spray can. <laughs> so not all your art has been on the page. <laughs> Were you a tagger? When I was younger, when I was like 13, 14, 15, you know, I just loved to draw. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of one of those with the rebellious age, just dumb, but whatever. <laughs> you can forgive your, your young self. It's but okay. now it was fun, right? Like I was actually tagging in my wall, combining colors and just mixing it up and having a great time. And I was like, you know, just it was art. It was just sitting there being mindless, just thinking about color and what I want to do next. I love that. Laundry list. What are all your current projects? Current projects. I have two restaurants in Capitol Hill. One's Taku. That one's a fried chicken, Japanese chicken karage, marinated in koji and ginger, you know, very oh ginger God. forward. I want it. Double fried, <laughs> crispy, bunch of different sauces, fried rice, kind of your simple, casual neighborhood bar, if that makes sense. That serves mm -hmm. Japanese food till 1.30 a.m. <laughs> and then my other one is located inside of a brewery called Red Hook, and we sling out Detroit-style pizza with a little bit of mochi. But there's a lot of Japanese touches in it, too. What brought you to Detroit-style pizza? I think Osaka, right? Well, originally when they wanted me to help out their kitchen, I was going to do more of a Japanese concept. But as I was, you know, kept going into the space, there were people that were coming in all the time. And they weren't a clientele that was going to eat Japanese food all the time. They would feel uncomfortable. You know, I think that's when my hospitality over chef thing comes in. I'm like, that just doesn't feel right, right? So I was like, what is the right thing? And then I had the opportunity Detroit sell pizza in LA, not in Detroit. <laughs> but it just resonated with me because number one, my mom's side is a baker family. Like my grandpa's known for Japanese milk bread throughout the country. And Osaka is a carb on carb city. You eat ramen <laughs> with a bowl of rice on the side. You eat yakisoba noodles 
inside a bread sandwich. Like it's carve on carve. And when I had, you know, okonomiyaki is known in Osaka, takoyaki, udon, like all these starch carved things, Osaka. Some people may say otherwise in Japan, like they might say their own culture. I'm just going to say they're wrong. It's from Osaka. (laughs) You starting fights here. (laughs) Just a little bit. (laughs) But yeah, so when I had it, I was like, this is very much like that Osaka vibe. Osaka energy and I can add that like almost okonomiyaki style rich flavoring and more be a little bit more creative with it and just kind of kept going into it and dug deep into it and now we have this really fun product that's coming out. I pick like 20 pounds of morale so right now we have this morale nettle pizza on the menu. So good right? Nettle pesto, nettle aioli, Brett Rossino from TOC actually came over and helped me with the dough recipe and some of these aioli things and just you know i like to learn from other people so it's been a big collab and just great minds getting together and yeah running a fun pizza shop i love this so much what is the next way you're gonna scare yourself i think i am every day i think i (laughs) consistently am every day i you know i talk to different business associates different business plan people i obviously i filter a lot of it just because i have a lot of opportunities Mm -hmm. but Every single time I sit in these meetings, I'm learning something new. I'm uncomfortable and it's scary because I know when I talk, now I'm going to sit on my computer and work on spreadsheets and documents for the (laughs) next four or five hours. But in my calendar is starting to look busy, but I'm going to keep doing this because when we get there and when we're ready and my team's ready, it's my responsibility to already have the next hook. What is there anything you want people to know about you that they don't that you're like, I wish somebody would ask me that. (laughs) Or is there anything people can do for you? Help out restaurants. You know, restaurants have been hard. (laughs) Go to your neighborhood's small restaurants if you can and just give them a little love show a little extra tip if the restaurant's slow that goes a long way for helping restaurants in general as i said like small businesses are only going to get harder so the more support you can have for those restaurants the more restaurants can do good in the neighborhood and i'm thinking also just because people again they feel like this incredibly personal connection to you and you know they always it's you know it's it's a different thing each time you meet sort of a celebrity you are a celebrity each time it's weird (laughs) yeah actually do you want to talk about that for a second i'm very curious about this because when we finally met it was in Aspen at the Food and Wine Classic. And I see how folks from Top Chef especially are regarded there. And it's like the gods wandering among us. But I said, you know, dancing through the whole thing. And what is that like? You know, I think I take it as an opportunity, right? You can look at it as, oh my, I have another thing. Or I take it as this is an opportunity to showcase that I can be kind, I can be polite, I can be hospitality forward. And maybe if you're having a bad day, and someone stops you to do something, you can be kind too. Like, I don't know, I just always kind of have that perspective and goal. And also like, you know, I used to have to prep for hours in the kitchen and maybe someone smiles. Now I can be polite to someone and kind and talk to them for five minutes and make their week. And that's such an incredible thing. If I have the opportunity to give out a little bit of energy and I don't know, I I believe that that stuff translates, right? That goes somewhere else. So if I can do that, why not do it as much as I can? I think that's so beautiful and lovely. And actually, what does tinfoil swan mean to you? What is tinfoil swan? I'm so sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. Some people are like, ah, tinfoil swan. You know when you go to a kind of like fancy restaurant or something trying to be fancy and they get your leftovers in a tinfoil swan? Oh. Like that like decorative kind of like old school. What is a tinfoil swan? It's hospitality. It's a conversation piece. It's like the notion with the podcast is like, we're going to give you a delicious meal and then something to take away. (laughs) I think a tinfoil swan is a wonderful conversation piece. (laughs) I love that. 
Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Shota Nakajima. Be sure to follow Tinfoil Swans on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we would love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast, hopefully five stars, and leave us a review, we would really appreciate it. You can also find us online at foodandwine.com slash tinfoilswans. And also thank you so much to our production team, Lottie Le Marie, Dominique Arciero, Michael Classic, Amelia Schwartz, Ashley Day, Sean Flint, and Hunter Lewis. Make sure to come back next Tuesday for my conversation with Manit Johan. See you then.